Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am Jesse Mayer, your host of The Salty Pastor with Dr. Douglas Peak, a podcast designed to help you develop a biblical framework in which to understand what is happening in your world today. <laughs> Thanks for having me, everybody, and I want to thank you particularly for joining me because I believe that fluff is not enough anymore. We need something a little bit more deeper, and we need to understand... Uh, some really foundational principles of why things are happening, particularly as God has revealed in the world, but also in what you see every day. So this is the place for you. It's a place uh, where we show you how to think for yourself, how to grow your faith for yourself, empower you with uh, authentic biblical knowledge. Uh, Our goal is not to tell you what to think, but to help you think for yourself. So if you're concerned with what's going on in the world, you want to know more about what the Bible teaches on how to navigate it, then this is the place for you. And we are currently in a series titled Essential. Our goal is to answer the questions of why you're essential. Uh, Every human being, including you, needs to know that their life matters. The answer is found in the New Testament book of Ephesians. The first chapter of Ephesians tells us that we are essential because we are at the center of God's cosmic plan. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that our faith is essential because our faith opens the door to God's redeeming grace in our life. And then we jumped ahead to chapter 5 where we found that marriage is essential. And today we're going to be in the first part of chapter 6 and learn why God teaches us parenting is essential. Pastor Doug, why is parenting (laughs) essential? Oh, that's a great question, Jesse. Well, let's uh, first just to let you know that uh, when we first started the book of Ephesians, I talked about how the first two chapters are the foundational doctrinal principles. And then what happens is in chapter three, four, five, and six, he applies these principles first to his own mission and calling in chapter three, and then in the life of the church community, chapter four, and then in the family community and those relationships in marriage and then in parenting and in business and so forth in the uh, latter part of chapter five and chapter six. So once we laid the foundation, we can bounce around a little bit right. without losing the meaning or important of anything. And so that's why Absolutely. we're doing it. And so here in chapter one of verse six, it starts off with he just taught about marriages and how marriage works and how it's a reflection of how Christ relates to the church, the bride of Christ. And then he says this, he goes, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then it's interesting. He quotes out of Deuteronomy only a part of the uh, Ten Commandments. Not he, he quotes one of the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't quote it in its entirety, just a portion of it, where he says, verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so he adds that, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That sounds like a threat almost on your parents <laughs> otherwise. Yeah, other, well, <laughs> there is a promise in there, you know. Uh, so, you know, first, I think it's written to people who are teenagers and young adults. This is, you know, it's written so that the people who can read it, which tended to be older people and sometimes parents themselves, is that it, it was showing that parents are to teach their children to obey them and to honor them. And it's really important that this become a value in the family. 
And so the reason why is because when you learn this value, there's a promise. And the promise is uh, 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 living well, living long. We'll get in that in a second. But I, the, before I do that, I wanted to talk about how this shows Paul's perspective of the old covenant or the old law. Because when you read the book of Romans and you read some other books, you see that Paul was very specific about how we are not under that law anymore and we don't abide by its requirements anymore. However, of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament. Yeah, we're under the new covenant, uh, which is the law of grace brought to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting how he obviously saw the values and the principles still in effect under the new covenant as well. And that's kind of part of growing in faith is kind of figuring out what that is. Absolutely. So this helps us understand more clearly the teachings of the scriptures. So what exactly is the promise that you, you alluded to or that Paul is talking about? Well, it has two parts. The first part is that it may go well with you. And I like everyone listening to think about this. What does it mean? It means this, that the path of your life, the pattern of your life, the rhythm of your life is going to go well or smoother. You see, when you're raised in a healthy situation, uh, it helps you as an adult navigate life more smoothly. It goes well. You have more opportunity. You have uh, more uh, prosperity. You have more of these things. And if you're raised in an unhealthy situation, you can pick up toxic habits and behaviors and attitudes that hinder your adult life, right? Absolutely. So, So the key is, is that whether you're raised in a healthy or an unhealthy situation is that Paul is laying out a principle that if you can learn to adopt it, Right. Either you learn it growing up in a healthy situation by osmosis or if you didn't grow up in a healthy situation, it's like, OK, I need to work on this and learn it. You can learn it even as an adult. It, your life just goes so much better. It goes well with you. And because it goes well with you, I think it influences the second part of the promise. And that is that it it extends your life. So that you have a, a, a long life on earth, but it's not just, oh, I get to live 10 more years. Notice what he says. It says you may enjoy a life, long life on the earth. So it's about discovering how to enjoy uh, the, the longevity that you'll be given because it goes well with you and how to find more joy in each and every day. Now, what's interesting is in this passage of scripture, why a lot of people raised in kind of maybe unhealthy or toxic situations is that they, they see how parents have taken advantage of this. And our media has pointed that out, is that parents that have high expectations are weird, parents that are strict or bad and all these kinds of things. And so the media loves to really hammer what I call good parenting and give it a negative connotation. However, even if you do, let's say for sake of argument, you have a pattern that uh, a parent that over functions, it overdoes it. Right. Right. And so, uh, uh, is the parent who does this, is it because the promise is flawed or even the principle is flawed or is it, because the participants in the system are sinful and flawed. And this is a critical point because what, what we will dig into this more later, but is it possible to create a system 
or a principle that results in a perfect outcome every time when those participating in the system or applying the principle are imperfect in and of themselves. Mm. So that's what's really, really tough is what we tend to look on is, oh, if we had a perfect principle or a perfect system, then, then we everything got, would be great. Yeah. It, we never take into account, particularly in our society, that maybe the problem isn't the principle, but it's we we're flawed. And no matter how hard we try, we'll never apply it perfectly. Absolutely. So what is the path to the promise then? Well, the path is learning how to honor, but not as the world defines honor. Uh, it says honor in the Lord. He specifically uses that phrase. And this means you must find a biblical definition of honor as opposed to a world's definition of, of honor. Uh, just like the world's definition of love is dramatically different than the biblical definition of love. So the definition of honor in the Bible has a totally different flavor to it than the world's definition of honor. You know, the world teaches that you only honor something that's worthy of honor. Hmm. So that person must earn your honor, you know, or do something worthy of respect. And what that basically means subconsciously, what you're saying is I only respect, I only honor things if honor resides in the object or the recipient of honor. So it's contingent upon the object. That's what the world says. Okay. Well, the Bible has a totally different flavor about it. Okay. And it focuses on the person who gives the honor. So when you honor something, even if the recipient is unworthy, then the honor is noble. In other words, when I choose to honor something, even though the recipient is not honorable, then that means I'm more noble. This applies in with love, doesn't it? You know, don't we see the highest form of love is when someone can love something that's unlovable, right? right. And when you un, when you love something or a child that's unlovable, doesn't it heal in that child? Right. In the same way, honor biblically is I, I'm going to honor my parents, you know, uh, because it says more about me than about my parents, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, it's a choice you're making. It's a it's choice you're making. That, it's not something that they really control. It's your choice whether to honor them or not. And yeah. so that's your. And, and I'd like to point out that if you were raised by really toxic parents, then the best way to overcome the toxic influence in your life is to learn how to honor them. Hmm. That is the key to being set free from the perpetual pattern of dysfunction and unhealth because you just repeat the patterns. And uh, uh, what, what's really critical is learning how to honor basically allows you to divide their sinful behavior and their sinful attitudes from the, the promise that God had in mind. And the more you're able to do that, then you can see the purity of parenting and the importance of parenting, right? Mm -hmm. And you can, but you divorce this sinful behavior of how it perverts it. And that is a very healing thing for a person who is raised in an unhealthy situation. Well, and that really makes sense because, especially as a young person trying to do that with a parent that has been seen as failing at parenting yes. has to be ridiculously tough. But yes. what you're saying is it'll add years to their life and make their life so much better if they can overcome these 
this this uh, blockade that they've basically right the had. toxicity that they've been given and and look th- there's the bottom line is is if you're around toxicity it rubs off on you right you're going to pick it up whether you want it to or not and then satan uses that to pervert it even more you know he always loves to throw gas on a burning ember um and and so what happens is when you learn to honor, that's the path to healing and overcoming. Because honor doesn't mean accepting. And honor doesn't mean saying a wrong was right. You know, honoring your parent, like, you know, if you had a parent that abandoned you or did something bad, uh, you, honoring them doesn't say, oh, well, you know, you ran off and forgot about me and that was the right thing to do. That's not honor. I call that stupidity. <laughs> Honor is learning to say is this is what God intended it to be. And here's where you went wrong. I can honor what God wants. And so and, and the key is, is about, you know, the, that key phrase, you know, children obey your parents. And, and you know, I, I see this as a, a linguistic. It's a juxtaposition because really, who's the people reading this text? The older people. Yeah. The parents are the ones reading it. Right. And so what what it is, is like I'm I'm to teach my children to obey me because this honors the Lord. So that totally changes. It. It's I'm not in a power play with my kids. Well, to, he's not even putting a power play on the kids because he right. wasn't writing it for the kids. He wasn't right. like, here, read this. This yeah. is your rule. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to teach the adults that this is what they need to be. Yeah, exactly. So on the whole on, concept of honor, I think, really is the key to healing the toxic influence of failed parenting in your own life. So so why is this biblical principle so hard to grasp for so many people today? I mean, even just as you're explaining it now, I'm having some revelations about even my own interactions with my parents. Like, yeah. why is this so hard for a lot of people these days to understand? Well, uh, this is going to sound strange, but it's societal deconstructionism. <laughs> Another big word. Pastor Doug, always with the big <laughs> words that I have to just try to understand on the fly. I get this. <laughs> I believe the biggest challenge parents are facing today is the issue, issue of philosophical deconstructionism. You know, I know it sounds weird. It sounds abstract. But I am absolutely convinced that this is the number one issue parents are facing. Why is that? Well, it's a philosophy that started in the 40s. Uh, it started off as what was called literary deconstructionism by a philosopher. He was a Jewish ag- agnostic, and he was raised in northern Africa right after World War II. His name was Jacques Derrida. And basically his point was is that the words that a poet or the words of uh, orator uses – uh, the meaning they had when they wrote those words are irrelevant. What really makes is what do you think the words mean when you read them? Okay. So it divorced the point of what was written. And it's more about your interpretation. Exactly. Than what and of course, this intent. is the foundational basis for postmodern philosophy is deconstructionism. And now, you know, you have deconstructionist philosophers and so forth. But here's the bottom line. His deconstructionism has filtered out into everyday society and culture with this basic idea. And that is, if I can find one thing wrong with the system or with the principle, uh, guess what? I can reject the whole thing as false. So all I've got to do is find one little flaw 
you know. And then the whole thing's And then the whole thing's out the window. Yeah, I don't have to believe any of it. You're a liar, you know. So it's turned people into skeptics. Uh, 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 Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche, he... He introduced skepticism, you know, and it was a philosophical squinting is what they called it. So when everybody makes a a claim, you know, or a postulate, he would go, oh, really? You know, like squint, you know, Mm -hmm. like, really? Is that? For those of you listening, (laughs) Pastor Doug is making a very large (laughs) squinting face right now. (laughs) So, but it's just kind of that notion that I'm skeptical of everything. All right. So, but so your children are raised in this is a, this is a value in American culture, and they get it very, very young. It starts with cartoons, right? And this is why your children, when they become teenagers, they parse every word you say as a parent. You know, like for instance, you say, "Hey, it's time for dinner. Come time for dinner," and then they don't come down for ten minutes, and you are going. Where were you? And what does your teenager say? Oh, I disobeyed you because I knew exactly what you meant and I didn't do that. That never happens as a parent of teenagers. <laughs> you know, I've parented two and a half teenagers. Two and a half. Almost every time, even the best teenagers in the world say, well, I didn't know you meant like this second. You didn't say this second, right? I thought, okay, it was kind of time in a general it, sense. It has now become you have to be very, very specific with yeah. every single so you, yeah. request. So they just <laughs> naturally deconstruct every word you use to try to they find the wiggle room in it, you know? It reminds me of this, uh, uh, the Brady Bunch. There was an episode of the Brady Bunch. Uh, most people won't remember it, but... Uh, this dates me a little bit where the oldest son, Greg, he got into this, you know, with his dad and he used that. Well, you didn't say exactly blah, 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 blah. And so, uh, of course, dad, who's pretty smart, he comes and he says, hey, will you wash the car today? And he goes, he go, you need, you know, you, it's your job. You have to do it. He goes, OK, I'll wash a car today. So about 1130 at night, he comes into Greg's room and says, did you wash the car? And Greg goes, no. He goes, I'll do it tomorrow. That's he goes. Well, your exact words were, and so Greg was out there at midnight watching the car. <laughs> it's really kind of funny. And the point is, is this, is deconstructionism is built on a number of false premises. First premise to, uh, that's false is there is such a thing as perfection. Okay. And if something isn't absolutely 100% perfect, then I don't have to buy into it. I can be skeptical of it. The second premise is this, is that, If there was perfection, how would you, as an imperfect person, even know what it is? Is that even possible? Hmm. So there's another false premise there. Number three, it's really fuels the flames of pride and arrogance because it says, well, I don't have to take any responsibility for my own perfection, right? I can just point everybody else. I point out. Yeah. And so I don't have to listen to you. So I never have to deal with my own problems or unhealth or toxicity or attitudes or the way I think. All I got to do is say, well, that 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 pastor said one thing that was not absolutely 100 percent perfect. Therefore, I can just reject the whole thing. You know, Uh, my parents, I I can reject the whole thing Uh, uh, in school with my coach, with. And so what it does is it creates young people who are very, very arrogant and prideful in the way they approach life. And when you approach life really arrogantly and pridefully and toxically, it doesn't go well for you. 
It just doesn't. And then finally, what it does is it never tells people that how to be skeptical about your own perspective, right? Mm. It, that's a false premise. And that is, is that at some point I need to be skeptical of my own perspective, right? Right. Because how do I know I'm right? You know, how do I know I'm right? And so that's, that's why people, people are just trained in this. It's reflexive in this. And we just buy into it hook, line and sinker when we're five years old. And from then on, it just becomes a part of the way we think. And that's why it's so difficult to understand this principle. Well, maybe we should unpack more of this on Thursday. Um, but for now, let's, why don't we move on to verse four, where it talks about um, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, it's interesting because he starts with children, right? But then he says, okay, let's talk about the other side of the equation here. You got children and then you have parents, right? Right. And here's what's really interesting. Does he say mothers and fathers do not exasperate your children? No. He just calls out the dads. <laughs> I find this very interesting because in our day and age, parenting and education and the socialization of children seems to be the sole area of women. I mean, you just look at kind of anecdotally, women vastly outnumber male teachers in school. Uh, women vastly outnumber male uh, teachers and mentors in our children's ministry. You know, I think it runs, you know, five to one or something like that. Right. Uh, women uh, are the ones who buy all the parenting books. I mean, you just look at the covers. You know, have you ever seen a cover of a parenting book with a four wheeler on it or, or a giant some, motorcycle, yeah, motorcycle <laughs> or a gun or some guy <laughs> leaping off parent? No, it might sell a little bit better <laughs> if we actually sell. maybe that's something we need to look at. It's almost all, you know, the only the, I'm teasing here a little bit, a little bit, but salty. The only books that fathers read are the ones that their wives give them to read. <laughs> read this. <laughs> So you can, oh, okay, yes, yes ma'am, ma <laughs> yes, ma'am. But uh, here's another thing is that women today tend to be the moral center of the family. And to me, this is one of the most interesting trends out there. Uh, a lot of people knock the Victorian age. They knock all of that chivalry and honor and stuff like that. But that, in, and there, were, there was obviously flaws in it, but you look back and you look at some, of, it was some of the greatest human advancement in education and art literature science all of these massive things that advanced and what was amazing to it is this whole notion of chivalry and honor and stuff was uh, it, it emphasized that men should be the moral center of the family they should be the ones to uphold the values not because women can't but because it's really good when a man does that and so we see this over and over in the impact on families today with the absence of fathers. Uh, and then finally, you know, if you were just to look at uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, Hallmark sells, I think it's uh, eight to one Mother's Day cards compared to Father's Day cards. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Mother's Day is hands down Hallmark's number one holiday. Father's Day is like fourth or fifth. So I think that that this is a very interesting distinction to call out 
guys in fathers and to tell fathers you are not nearly involved in raising your children as much as you should be and this was even back in that day yeah this is 2000 years ago you know and it was in a roman society this was written to the church at ephesus which was predominantly gentiles who were romans up in asia minor which is modern day turkey so they were in the center of the roman empire they weren't in the Jewish stronghold of Palestine. Uh, they were way up there. And all of Roman Empire was a uh, patriarchal society. It was designed that way. It's called the paterfamilias. And so everything revolved around the father, uh, the paterfamilias. And as a matter of fact, the whole point of the census was to count the families in what the paterfamilias were doing and uh, kind of so it's really amazing that in this situation where the man, the father has all of this power and is supposed yeah. to be the most influential person. Paul's still calling him out, out. <laughs> saying you are still not yeah. involved enough. Yeah, you're not you're you're don't exasperate your kids, you know. And so that's really interesting. And that is, is that here's where I find this the overwhelming flexibility of Christianity, because when you look to 2000 years, you find because of the cultural wind. You know, it influences children in different ways. And so what exasperates a child, a child is different in every generation. You know, like in some generations, fathers were very loving, maybe and kind and and uh, but they didn't bring discipline. They didn't bring direction. OK, that exasperates kids. Uh, and another time, uh, fathers ignored their children and didn't ever give them any affection and love. OK, that exasperated kids. Right. So. The, 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 the standard of don't exasperate your kids is a wonderful standard because it brings balance. You know, as, as you go too far one direction, too far discipline, too cold, too hard. Or if you go too loving and too lackadaisical and not enough attention, it brings you back right, right to the kind of the true north, so to speak. So um, that's one of the things that I think is really, really uh, important in this entire teaching of, of both sides of it. So this next section of teaching has always had me wondering. It basically tells slaves to be obedient. Mm -hmm. And I thought slavery was something Christianity was distinctly opposed to. Um, we've even talked about it on, yeah. on the podcast. If this is the case, why would Paul be giving these kinds of instructions? Well, let's read it and see what he says. Okay, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So he's not asking them to do something out of the bounds of what they would do in following Jesus. Number six, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as uh, slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, what's interesting here in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, most people are going to read this with their own modern framework. And their modern framework is predominantly based on 18th and 19th slavery in America, right? Century slavery, right? Yeah, century slavery uh, in America. So, and that was a racially based form of slavery but that didn't exist in this society, okay? And racially based forms of slavery only 
came into existence when the technology which was which was shipping uh, allowed that to happen so we've talked about the scourge of slavery and its immense history throughout all of human history in every culture and and uh, uh, how terrible and overwhelmingly bad it was in past podcasts. But what, what Paul's doing here is something really quite remarkable because in the Roman Empire in particular, as I said earlier, this is written to the churches in, uh, to Ephesus and Asia Minor, is that they had adopted the Aristotelian ethic where Aristotle taught that when a person was a slave, they were non-human. They were simply a tool. You see this practiced by the Romans. Uh, when my family and I uh, lived in Italy one summer, we drove down to Rome and we did a bunch of the tours, which I really enjoyed. We did the Colosseum and uh, it talked about how Vespasian was one of the builders of the Colosseum. And they had 100,000 slaves build the Colosseum. Gosh, that's massive manpower who built it. And somebody in our group just said, well, how many slaves died in the building of this? And the, the tour guide said, well, nobody knows because slaves were tools. So nobody counted. It's like for them, it was like yeah. counting how many nails you threw out. If exactly. you were building a house or something. Yep. Just get them out of the way, throw more in there. So this was Aristotle's ethic in Rome that they had adopted. So if that's how you thought it is, and in your, let's say you're a master, right? And you're reading this. Okay, and you think, let's say your your perspective is, is that the difference between this person and a hammer, there is no difference, right? right. And then he says, okay, you're, you're, you are to listen to your master, to follow your master, like you follow Christ, because you are serving the Lord, you're not serving people, your master is just an earthly person, and you're really doing this for Jesus, so if you were a master reading that, what would that say to you? They'd say, okay, this is a radical concept. This slave is not a hammer. What is this slave? It's a person. This is a co-child of God who's been saved just like me. Right. <laughs> so that was, and so a lot of uh, historical theologians say this is the teaching principle that paved the way to the eradication of slavery in the Roman Empire. And this is the first of three times that the Christian principles were the impetus for abolishing slavery over the last 2,000 years. First, it happened in the Roman Empire. Then it happened in the uh, Middle Ages uh, in Europe in the, in the kind of the tearing down of the whole feudal system, which was kind of a form of slavery. And then the abolitionist movement in uh, 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 England at that time, it was the British Empire and in the Americas and in France. So three times all of these abolitionist movements were driven by uh, the Christian preaching and teaching on these ethics. So what's really fascinating, here's a little tidbit history for people, and that is, is that Foothills Christian Church uh, it, uh, started out of a thing called the Restoration Movement, mm -hmm. which was in 1812 is kind of when it started. And one of the early founders of it, and the whole point is that our church is that is that based on uh, Ephesians chapter four, it says, be diligent to preserve the bond of unity. And at the time, uh, the founder, one of the early founders looked around and said, look, there's so many denominations and so many creeds and stuff. We just want to get back to be Christians. Just let's just be Christians, New Testament Christians, follow Jesus, 
read the Bible as our only guide. Get rid of all the creeds and the doctrinal statements and the systematic theologies, and let's just try to follow Jesus in its purity and form. And so it, it kind of just languished a little bit. It didn't catch any traction until right before the Civil War in the 50s, 1850s. And what happened is the founder, uh, he would travel through the South and he would debate people. And he became famous debater because a lot of people in the South were trying to use the New Testament to prove slavery. And they were doing this because the abolitionist movement, which was massive in all the northern states, was all driven by preachers. And they were preaching out of the scriptures. And so in order to try to counter their influence, they tried to use the Bible to say it was okay. And you see this happening today all the time uh, with any given issue in right. society, as you always find someone trying to use the Bible to prove it. And of course, you know, scholars and theologians usually come in and just rip them to shreds. <laughs> and that's what this guy did. He would go down there and he would just shred them. And so there were these guys that would follow him around and they would take notes and then they would type it up and they would print it. And these things sold like hotcakes. People wow. love these debates. It's really similar now is what are some of the, the, be, the most watched videos on YouTube? You know, it's when you see these debates, you right. know, and it's always titled, you know, this guy shreds this dude, you know, right. and people love those things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's kind of where our own thing came out of. And so I think what's critical to understand is that the biblical principles here is that it doesn't matter where you find yourself in society. You should always see yourself as a child of God and that you're living and working for Jesus. And that's, that's just the most fulfilling, uh, validating thing for you as a human being. And then he caps off verse 9. He says, now, masters, you need to do the same thing. And Paul mm-hmm. does this. He, he always does this. He always inverts it. He starts off. It's like, it's like uh, uh, when married couples will come and see me and they're, they're having an argument or a fight, you know, it's pretty easy early on when they come in to meet with me and sit on the couch. Who dragged them down there? Because <laughs> their position is my spouse is wrong and I brought them here to have the pastor straighten them out kind of a thing, you know. <laughs> and so they come in, they sit down, and it's pretty easy to see who that, who, who's, where they are at on that. And so I always start with the person, well, what's going on? Talk to me, blah, blah, blah. And I speak a little bit truth into that, just like Paul. I got this from Paul. I didn't come up with it. I got a, and then I look to that other person, and I said, yeah, and you need to do the same thing because this is your problem too. And they're taken aback. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. How dare you? <laughs> You're supposed to be. This is for him, yeah. not for me. Yeah, exactly. This, this is for her, not is, for me. Yeah, exactly. You're here to fix my spouse, not me. Well, yeah, you're the problem, too. So that and he does that. You do the same. He goes, stop threatening since you know that he who is both mass, their master and yours is in heaven. And he plays what? No favoritism. You know, think about that. He's talking about people who've grown up with this Aristotelian ethic for hundreds of years. The entire economy of Rome is built on this. It was estimated in Rome at this time there were over 60 million slaves. Think about that. 60 million slaves. And that's one-third of the population of the Roman Empire. Gosh. It was unbelievably huge. And so uh, he's, he's, these people have lived this way. It's ingrained at every level. And he's saying, guess what? There is no favoritism. 
The paterfamilias, the whole patriarchal society of Rome was built on social status, social structure, hierarchical structure. The reason they did a census every five years was for no other reason than to uh, be able to move up and down on the social ladder because you would record how many uh, boys you had because they could fight in the military, how much land, your productivity and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just it became a massive thing. They'd have these people that would come in and they would assess. They were like assessors and you would meet with them before they would record it in a book. And and uh, it was really kind of crazy that way, how all this worked. And yet in the midst of this hierarchical, patriarchal driven society with massive amounts of slavery, they're very affluent. Of course, nothing compared to America today. But Paul says there's one master and he plays no favoritism at all. Rat Those are radical things for them to hear. And so there's no way in heaven you can use this to say that God approves of it and that Paul is approving of it. As a matter of fact, if you understand how a first century person was reading this, you would see how challenging it would be. That's like a mic drop from Paul. He's just like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a mic drop because after verse nine, he changes the subject and talks to everybody. Well, I am looking forward to this weekend's message on why parenting is essential. I'm also looking forward to unpacking um, some of the stuff we alluded to earlier in this podcast about um, what's going on in our society today. And we're going to talk about that on Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that you guys listening aren't going to want to miss Thursday's podcast either. It should be extremely salty. So <laughs> Super salty. Make sure you tune in and we will see you on Thursday. <laughs> Blessings, everyone.